Good morning. Today I have Don Lynch with me. Hiya, John. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, sure. Um, John Lynch brought up in Newcastle. That's the untying one. Um, a long time ago. Uh, I've lived and worked on every continent except Antarctica because I spent the bulk of my working life in international sales. Um, the places I like most out of all that have been the Middle East and New Zealand. Uh, and I know those are two wildly different places, but that's just fact. Um, but I've been writing all that time. I've been writing since I was a child. Um, I write contemporary fiction as John Lynch. I write historical fiction as R.J. Lynch. And I write police procedurals as J.J. Sullivan. Uh, what else can I tell you? Actually, when I say I've been a writer all my life, people sometimes look askance at me. Um, one of my earliest memories is I was, I was four years old uh, and I was sitting on the netty, which is, if you're not from the Northeast, the ne a netty is an outside lavatory. And I was sitting on there with the door open. And I'm sure people walking past must have thought, look at that disgusting little boy. Uh, and I may have been a disgusting little boy, but in my mind, I was driving a horse-drawn gypsy caravan down a dusty road to some place I'd never been before. And I was telling myself stories about it as I went along. Um, and I've always done that. And when I was 10, I stood on the stage. By this time, we had indoor plumbing, by the way. I stood on the stage at Benton Park Primary School in Newcastle and read to the assembled parents and their offspring a story I had written. Um, but that was a long, long time ago because I was 10 in 1953 and I went on writing, but my breakthrough year wasn't until 1989. And that's when I sold my first short story to the BBC radio, my first article to a magazine and my first book to a publisher. So it took a long time. I'd got lots of rejections before then. Uh, I'd never had an acceptance. In fact, I could scarcely believe the first one I got. You said that you write three different genres. Which came first? Uh, it's difficult to say. I was writing historical fiction and contemporary fiction at about the same time. I suppose I started with contemporary fiction. I was just writing about the here and now uh, and people you meet and things you do and the way people behave. Somebody, a very good writer, once said of, of what I write, it doesn't matter what, what genre you appear to be writing, everything you write is actually a love story. And I think that's probably true um, because I'm interested in what brings people together. Uh, but at the same time, I'd got launched into genealogy. Um, and 
some people I identified as part of my tree, going back to the 18th century in Durham, County Durham, I decided I wanted to write about them. So, so I started writing historical fiction quite a long time ago, writing about my ancestors. And of course, like almost everyone, I'm not descended from the wealthy and the uh, privileged. Right, my, um, uh, in fact, am I allowed to, am I allowed to use a mild swear word on your, right, okay. Um, one, one line of my descent is from, um, is from Bedfordshire, uh, which is known to you. And I was delighted to discover in, in an 18, in a, a 19th century census, that one of my ancestors down there was what was called a coprolite operative, which meant I had an operator, I had an ancestor who really did shovel shit for a living. And that, that was a delight to discover that. Um, but I'm just, the people I'm descended from are almost entirely um, agricultural laborers, coal miners, people like that. And, and, and that's what I wanted to write about. That's what my historical, my historical fiction is not about wayward dukes. It's not about the women who snare them. It's about the poor and how they get through each day. And sometimes they don't. Um, that's what I write historical fiction about. Uh, and, and they get up to the same things as everybody else does. Um, but um, they do it with a bit more general filth around. Uh, I'm talking about um, dirt from perform and so on. I'm not talking about the other kind of filth. Um, so I was writing those at the same time. And, and my first, the first historic, the first contemporary fiction I sold was, um, well, no, I'm not going to tell you that. The first one I, I sold that I'm prepared to, um, oh, she's gone. The first one I sold that I'm prepared to talk about is uh, was published as Zappa's Mam's a Slapper. And it's about um, a young lad who was raised on a, a sink estate in Newcastle among factless people and penniless people and some people who were penniless but weren't factless uh, and that's the world I grew up in so so you know I, I started out I mean I know they say write about what you know and I, I generally think that's twaddle because um you know you can, you can know about almost anything if you put your mind to it um but I did start out writing historical fiction about family members and contemporary fiction about the kind of people I grew up among, some of whom were splendid people and some of whom were not. So how did the police procedurals come along? Where did that, how did that happen? Well, I, what I haven't mentioned so far is that I also work as a, um, a ghostwriter. I work, I don't mean people write to me and say, write my book. If, if, generally speaking, if somebody writes to me and says, write my book, I say, write it yourself. Um, but I, I work for two publishers um, who, who send me work 
for one of two reasons. Either, I mean, as, as, as I'm sure you're aware, publishers don't much like writers. We're a damn nuisance. We ask them all sorts of questions about, you know, what support you're giving me and when, uh, how many have we sold and why haven't we sold? They ask all sorts of stuff. So publishers don't actually like writers very much. Um, and so one of their ideals is um, to publish books written by people who don't actually exist. Uh, and I do a fair bit of that. Um, they pay me the same sort of advance they'd give a mid uh, a mid ranking author, and uh, and that's it. I, you know, I, and I love that because I don't have to get involved in any of the marketing, any of the cover design, anything like that. I write the book, and that's the bit I enjoy. That's the bit I like. Um, but the other and the other class of ghostwriting I do is. I work for a, for a publisher in America who they publish books by people who are famous in some other field and they want to be writers. Uh, and the, the only problem with that is they can't actually write. So, so they come to me. Okay. And I do that. And I'd written some police procedurals. Uh, I'm not going to tell you. Whenever you do this, you sign a non-disclosure agreement. Break that agreement once, you'll never work again. So I'm not going to tell you the name. But anyway, uh, I heard a couple of cops. I know a couple of cops, and, and some of them were familiar with, with one of the books that I had written and said, you know, it's not like that. We don't. That's not how we behave. And I became interested, sufficiently interested in that, actually, too to look up some I, I looked up what, what I could find about this and I found Graham Bartlett who, who I know you know um, who ex-head of major crimes investigation um, consultant to crime authors and um, and now a police procedural author himself and what I said was I'm told this isn't what you really do. I want to know what you really do. And I've been on a number of Graham's courses, and 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 he's looked at my police procedural books before they're published. And and he'll say, you can't say that. You shouldn't say that. For God's sake, don't say that. Um, but we would have done it this way, and you need to know this. So I started writing the police procedurals really because I wanted to get it right. You know, I like... I like watching Vera as much as anybody else does. Um, although I would admit it irritates me a little that they couldn't find a genuine Northeastern actress to play the part. Um, but, you know, when we see Vera walk into the interview room and slap down her fires and say, okay, son, now start telling me the truth, you know, it makes great TV, but it's not what happens. Interviewing today is done by specialists at the, at the constable and sergeant level. And I wanted to get those things right. Um, and that's what I've tried to do. And I've now branched out. I'm sticking with the J.J. Sullivan name, but I'm also writing about a female sleuth called... Um, called Claire Tanner, who lives in Chester. 
excuse me, which is about 30 miles north of where I live. Um, and an altogether more salubrious place. Um, but she doesn't live in a particularly salubrious part of it. Um, and I had I started writing about, excuse me, <clears throat> I started writing about Claire two years ago, and she had to go to Canada to follow a lead. And then, of course, we had locked, we had COVID-19, we had lockdown. And I found it just wasn't possible because I was, you know, I'd started out this with a murder that happened in 1990. And here she is now in 2020, it's three years, 30 years later. And suddenly it appears that the woman who is supposed to have been murdered and for, for whom somebody has spent the last 30 years in jail uh, actually is alive and well and living in, in Vancouver Island. So I couldn't do it. I couldn't practice. I couldn't, I couldn't say, look, it's 2020. Here we are. And she's off to Canada. She's coming back. She's off to Canada. She's come. Couldn't do that because people would look at it and think, well, what about lockdown? So I just stuck it on one side and put it away. And then a few weeks ago, I looked at it and I thought, well, I could do this now. So the the dead person was actually killed in 1992 now. And Claire is doing her investigation in 2022. So we've got still got the 30 years. And um, uh, I'm finding that quite quite rewarding, really. But, it, it, you know, it brings me back to what I said earlier. The bit I enjoy is just the sheer invention. Like the little boy with his pants around his ankles and the door open, you know, telling himself stories about what, what he was passing. That's still what I'm doing. I'm telling myself stories. I'm hoping other people are listening to them sometimes. But if they're not, it doesn't, well, I've still got to tell them. That's it. <laughs> mm. um, have you read Graham's book yet? No, I haven't. I pre-ordered it. I'm waiting for um, publication date. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's very good. Mm. Yes, yes. All the reviews I've seen, including yours, make it sound so good. And I'm sure it is because when he's giving mm. advice, uh, you know, don't say this, don't say that, you should say this. Occasionally he says, you know, you could say it like this. And it's very obvious that as well as having been a very senior policeman, he's also a gifted writer, you know, and, and he understands how you need to present things so that people will know what's going on um, and sympathize, empathize with what's going on, which, which, which can sometimes be difficult. The last contemporary fiction book I published was called Darkness Comes and and the the challenge I set myself in that was to say here is a man who has done just about everything that he shouldn't have done throughout his life uh, you'll find it difficult to think of some sin or crime that Ted Bailey has not committed. Um, but 
is there something to be said for the guy? And 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 so he's on the verge of death. He's having a near-death experience, and and he's in a hotel in Gran Canaria, and he finds himself in the bar of the hotel, taking part in a sort of mixture, a cross between a, a um, "This Is Your Life" and a, and a chat show, in which the whole of his life is being turned over, and it's not a pretty sight, believe me. But what is actually happening is that he's on trial for his immortal soul. Um, and so the question, the challenge I set myself was to persuade readers that somebody who's done everything this guy has done um, could still be worth a second chance. Um, it took me a while to write that one, and not least because there were some, some events in it that um, could be related to my life, and I wasn't sure how much I wanted to put those out into the into the uh, open. But there you go. Um, during the course of writing all of your books, what's the most interesting thing you found out when doing research? Or what's the biggest research rabbit hole you've fallen down? Well, the most interesting thing I found when I was doing research was it was actually uh, in the historical stuff. I, I sp I've spent a lot of time in um, in archives around the country, um, and particularly in Durham, because uh, those books, the first two in the series, are actually set in, in Wrighton in County Durham. Uh, the third one spends a lot of time in uh, in the American colonies as they run as they run up towards uh, the War of Independence. Uh, and I'm on the side of the colonists, of the colonists, by the way, the the, the rebels. Um, but one something that I've, I've felt for a long time, it's been a sort of motto of mine, um, when everybody knows something, the one thing you can be certain of is that the one thing everybody knows is wrong. And um, something that everybody knows, and it's in every textbook I've read, and, and on this subject I've read them all, is that there were no workhouses in the northeast of England until 1835, just one. Okay, so there I am in in the Durham archives, uh, and I'm going through the notebook of the parish of the council notebook of the parish of Wrighton uh, in the in the previous decades, um, and. Each year, among other things, each year there's a list of all the paupers in the parish and, and what allowance they are paid. Because ever since the reign of Elizabeth I, uh, supporting your own your paupers fell on the parish and they had to they had to provide money for um, for people. And Right up until about 1758, each year there's a list of the paupers and how much they got, and believe me, it wasn't much. 
Um, but then, round, just then, just round about 1760, thereabouts, um, there's a note that says they were they were offered the poorhouse, and they refused. All of them refused, and so they weren't given any support. So there we have. Everybody knows there were no workhouses in the northeast of England until 1835, and yet here, here is one in 1760, and there's the evidence for it. And, and as it, I knew as it happened that the woman who was on the, on the counter at the archives that day, her, her PhD, her doctorate, had been written about Wrighton Parish. So I took this book up, and I said, yeah, I thought there were no... Workshop, work, workhouses, etc., etc., etc. And she said, "Yeah, that's right." And I said, "Well, what's this?" You see, and she's looking at it, and and she's got her hands on this book and said, "She just, you know, I can feel it's being taken away from me." And she did have the grace to say, "I'll get a paper out of this," um, but I suppose, you know, as a discovery, that that ranks up there. Yeah, yeah. And I was glad to give her the thing, you know, and, and let her have her paper because that's for people like that. That's their profession. That's what they need to do. I was never going to write a paper about it. Um, uh, I prefer, I, I want to tell you this story. That, 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 I don't know, maybe it's not funny, but to me it is. My great uncle Jot, was, his actual name was George. We couldn't say George. He said Jot when he was a child. So he was Jot. Um, he was a great man. He was a coal miner. Great man for the one miners. And I needed, in the Just Not Right Man, or perhaps it was Paul or the second book, but anyway, I needed a carter, somebody you know, to drive a cart. So I, I came up with... Um, Sticky Bainbridge. And Sticky Bainbridge is called Sticky Bainbridge because he has a wooden leg. Okay, now, the fact is that Sticky Bainbridge really existed and he really was called Sticky Bainbridge because he had a wooden leg, but he wasn't around in the um, 1760s, which is when I'm writing about. He was around, you know, in the 1910s in County Durham. Uh, and and he had a little shop in a place called Town Moor, uh, South Moor, in Durham. Now there is actually a very impressive, and has been for a very long time, department store in Newcastle called Bainbridges. He wasn't one of those Bainbridges, all right. He had a little a little store, but because he had a store, he had a car. Nobody's ever explained to me how Sticky Bainbridge, with one leg, drove this car. But it, but anyway, he had a car. So, um, my uncle, my great uncle Jot, has just finished work down the pit in Southmore. This is around about 1920, long before the time of pithead baths. And he's, he's thirsty. And he's got, you know, he's got um, a nose full and a throat full of coal dust. He's also filthy. Um, 
because he just come up in the pit. The problem with South Moor is it's a Methodist town and there isn't a, a pub in the place. He can't get a, he can't get the drink. He can get a nice drink of Dungeon and Burdock. Um, but what he can't get is a beer, and that's what he wants. So he's walking from Southmoor to Stanley. And if you knew that part of the country, you would know that that's a long hill and it's very, very steep. So, but Stanley is at the top of the hill and, and there's no shortage of pubs in Stanley. Never was, still isn't. Um, Stanley, incidentally, is the place where my my own grandfather went down the pit, went first when he was 12 years old. So it's a place I know quite well. Um, and my mother was born in Southmoor in 1915. So Josh is going up the hill and he's going up the hill as fast as he can. And he, because he's thirsty and he comes level with them. Um, with uh, Sticky Bainbridge, who's driving his car up the hill, but Sticky doesn't have much of a car because, you know, he hasn't got much money, so he's struggling with this hill, you see. So he shouts out to, um, he sees Jot, and he shouts out, how are man, Jot, I'll give you a lift. And Jot says, no thanks, man, Sticky, I'm in a hurry. Now, that made me laugh. I don't know whether it makes you laugh, but it made me laugh. So, and, and that's a story that's been handed down, you know, one of Uncle John's one-liners. So I used this, I used, I mean, obviously I didn't use the car in 1760, but that's an example of, not research exactly, because it's more family law, but, you know, the way you take something from here and you use it over there, it, it's carpentry, a lot of what we do. You know, we've got all the bits. They don't necessarily fit together. So we make them. And sometimes, of course, you get an email saying you haven't made them fit together very well because somebody's found something that you know, they don't agree with or whatever. Somebody once said to me, you know, that surely they didn't have tea um, that early in, in a village in County Durham. And I said, yes, they did. Um, tea was expensive if you if you bought it in the in the prescribed way and paid duty on it, but this tea would have come in through um, uh, through uh, Whitby or Robin Hood's Bay, um, and nobody paid any duty on it. Um, and but I can tell you they were drinking tea then. Yes, they were. So sometimes you get called out on things and you have to say, yeah, I got that wrong. And sometimes you get called out on things and you think, I have to be polite about this. You know, I can't say what I'd like to say because that's just going to upset a reader and that you don't want to do that. So I'll bite my tongue and just say, actually, the fact is. So there you go. What else can I tell you? <laughs> Um, who are your favourite characters to write and who, which characters give you the most trouble? Characters who give me the most trouble are probably righteous characters. The characters I like writing most are the ones who they know life is difficult. We all know life is difficult. It's supposed to be difficult. Um, 
but they also know it can be amusing. I mean, you know, sometimes people say to me, how could you make, how could you make that into a joke? How could you make a laugh out of that? Uh, and I, my, my response to that, generally speaking, is look, if you can look at this world we live in and not laugh, then I'm sorry, you're just not paying attention. Um, so the most difficult are the, are the very righteous ones, so the ones who never do anything wrong, um, because I don't understand them. Um, I don't understand how people can live their lives like that. Um, and the ones I most enjoy writing about are the ones who hover on the wrong side of not necessarily the law, but who don't, who may pay lip service to the way people expect life to be lived, but don't. My brother-in-law um, once described to me, he was meeting my father, his future father-in-law, for pretty well the first time. Um, this, is the, this is the father who comes from Bedfordshire, by the way. And um, from Arlesey, in fact, when Arlesey was a little village, not a dormitory town for London. And when its biggest industry was uh, the lunatic asylum. Let's, let's never forget that about Arlesey at that time. I used to go there on holidays each summer, and oh, dear me. Um, they have a very special type of people there. Um, but anyway, so my dad takes... Jeff, my brother-in-law, into a pub, you see, and they uh, and they've got a and they have a drink, and and you know there's a couple of very nice glasses they're drinking out of. And my dad pays for the drinks, right? And they're just about to leave when my dad picks up the, the glasses and hands them to Jeff, and he says, "Just slip those into your pocket." And that was my that was Jeff's introduction to his future father-in-law. I like people like that. You know, they don't necessarily... Not, I mean, that was, was not a terrible thing to do. You know, he didn't knife anybody. Um, but it didn't necessarily find the rules that other people played by uh, binding. Yeah, I like them sort of people too. They're my favourite yeah. kind of people. Yeah, I mean, if you look around you, I've described the kind of people I, I tend to write about as normal people, ordinary people, um, leading extraordinary lives. And I think that describes almost everybody. And what makes me sad is that a lot of people don't realise that they're leading extraordinary lives. And yeah. that is sad. Because, you know, you only get one crack at it. Yep, yeah, Absolutely. Um, if you were to be picked up and transported into one of your own books as a character, which book would you choose? Bloody hell. Oh, that's difficult. Um, hmm. I'd be... 
Very Macarain from Zappa's Mams a Slapper, which is renamed now the, the Making of Billy Macarain. I'd be Billy when he's reunited with his childhood sweetheart. Um, that doesn't end well. And somebody wrote to me once, somebody, somebody quite furious sent me an email saying, how could you do that? You bastard. Hadn't, hadn't the poor kids suffered enough? <laughs> um, and, you know, my sister took very much the same line. And uh, I can remember I was driving her somewhere. She lives in Canada, but I was driving her somewhere when she was visiting here. And she was talking about, you know, what did, did you have to end the book like that? And I said, look, I said, first of all, I didn't end the book like that. That's not the end because all of my books have a happy ending. May not be the happy ending you were expecting, but it's a happy ending. Um, but I said, for the last 20,000 words of that book, while I was writing them, I was thinking about the reader and I was thinking, you think you know where this is going, don't you? You think this is a classical boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, don't you? Well, have I got a surprise for you? Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd do it all again. But the moment when he meets his childhood sweetheart again, um, I find it difficult to read that bit of the book again without crying. So, and I don't usually cry when I read my own books or anybody else's. Um, but I did find that very moving. So, yeah, that, probably that. And if not that, now this is very interesting, isn't it? If not that, then it would be James Blakiston when he finally screws up the courage. This is in A Just Not Right Man, the first of the Blakes and series. When he finally screws up the courage to ask Kate Greener to marry him. And she says, yes. And what the reason I say isn't that interesting is I've never thought of that before, but, but in both of those, you know, what I'm wanting to be is the guy who gets the girl at the moment he gets her. So you're an old romantic at heart then? <laughs> well, it appears so. And as I said, you know, somebody for whom I have a lot of time said, whatever you appear to be writing, you're actually always writing a love story. And I do think... Um, I, I don't, by any means, always end up with, you know, two people coming together after lots of vicissitudes, whatever they are. Um, but I do think, you know, that description is fundamentally true. That's what I'm writing about. Because to me, it's the most, it's the single most important thing. You know, lots of things are important. It's very important that England got so close to New Zealand's score today in the test match. Um, I don't think there's any way that can be anything but a draw now since we're on day four and they haven't finished. At the moment we started speaking, they haven't finished the first inning. Um, that's very important. It, it's, um, it's important that we beat Ireland when we play rugby. Um, 
and we don't always, and that's not just important, that's just tragic. Um, but actually, the things that go on between human beings, they're the most important. They're what really fundamentally, in the end, matters. And I suppose in the end, that's what I write about. Um, when you first set out writing, what was the one thing that you wanted to achieve or to happen? And has it happened? I wanted to get the occasional response from readers who said, um, simply that, you know, they enjoyed what I've done. Yeah, it has happened a number of times. Um, you know, that I'd given them pleasure uh, and made them think. Um, darkness comes in particular, the number of reviewers who said, you know, this made me think it could make you think. Um, because I just, you know, it's nice to think you're giving somebody a hint that there may be a different way of looking at things from the way they've always looked at them. You know, um, we all have our own set views, and God knows I have mine. Um, occasionally, it's, but I've also got grandchildren, and occasionally you know, it's good to be reminded that um, the way you see things isn't necessarily the way everybody sees things, and it isn't ne necessarily even right. Okay, that doesn't mean you're going to change. Um but it doesn't mean you treat other people with a certain amount of um, of respect, even when they say stupid things. You know, like, um, or even if they're Ireland supporters. <laughs> I find that very difficult when I'm at work, when people say stupid things. It's really, yeah. really difficult not to respond with sarcasm. I know, I know, I know. And... Um, I was like that for a terribly long time. And, you know, in the old days, before social media, when we relied on things like, when we relied on Newsnet, right, when there, there was a, a, an internet, I'm not talking, when I say old days, I'm not talking about my parents' days or even my childhood. There was an internet and you could communicate with people on it, but uh, not in the way you currently do. People used to use signatures a lot. And um, uh, there was one, one. I mean, there were a number of SIGs that, that uh, used to amuse me. One, carpe diem, seize the day, then go back to bed. I always liked that one. Um, <laughs> but the one I'm thinking of, oh, and there was, it doesn't take all kinds. We just have all kinds. Um but the one I'm really thinking of was this guy. He had a sig that said, I used to be disgusted. Now I'm just amused. And uh, to me, there's something healthy about that. You know, um, there are people who believe all sorts of strange things. Well, you've got to ask yourself in the end, is it hurting you? Does it matter? You know, the, who cares? And is it, is it going to change anything? Are they going to change anything? Are you going to change anything? You know, 
When I was young, I'm talking about in my 20s, I used to think I needed to read the newspapers, I needed to watch the news, I needed to listen to the news, I needed to know everything that was going on because it was down to me and my generation to change things. I mean, I laugh now when I think of that of that innocence. Um, you're not going to change anything. Um, and you don't have to take responsibility for anything except yourself and what you do. You can't stop other people hurting people. You can avoid doing it yourself. That's it, really. Yeah, um, will you be attending any of the literature events this year? No, I've always been... Um, a stalwart of the Hawkesbury Upton Literature Festival, but they're not holding it like that anymore. I used to enjoy the ones Dawn Brooks does up in Derby, which is not doing them like that anymore. Um, I've done a few others. And I've decided it's great to meet people. But more and more, you know, people used to say during lockdown, people would say, you know, how are you getting on? And, and, you know, there were people for whom lockdown was hell. But I would just say, look, this is normal life for me. You know, I sit in a small room and I interfere in the lives of people who don't exist. Um, and they talk to me. I know, I know what that makes people think. I do, um, but it's enough. It's enough for me. You know, when I was writing Zappa's Mams a Slapper or um, the Making of Billy McAlane, whichever name we give it, Billy. When I started that book. That's the only book I've ever, ever written that where the, the, the first chapter remained the same right to the end and was published that way, because usually it's just scaffolding to get the thing up and going. I sat here, right where I'm sitting now, and I typed out on a different computer, because it's a bit since, but I typed out. All I'd said was, I wouldn't mind seeing her in her knickers. And then I sat here and I stared at the screen and I was thinking, where the bloody hell did that come from? <laughs> and I still couldn't tell you the answer to that. But I know where it went because Billy McElwain, who whose birth was registered by his mother, his feckless, hopeless mother, as Zappa McElwain, he changed his own name later, you know, when he was at school. Billy stood here beside me, over this shoulder, left-hand shoulder, and he talked to me, and he said, don't forget the anger management. Poppy wouldn't have said that. It didn't happen this way. Now, you could say, Billy McElwain wrote that book, and Billy McElwain doesn't exist. 
And I'm always aware when I tell people that story that they are thinking, you know, there's a, look outside, there must be somebody looking for him, you know, somebody in a white coat. Um, but that's the way it works for me. And the longer I go, the, the more that becomes the only thing I want to do. I want to sit here with people talking to me and telling me what to write. And then I want to write it. Um, and then I want to move on to the next one. Um, I, I said, when I, when I mentioned the... Um, when I mentioned the... Uh, ghostwriting, I said that the, the, that's it. it lets me do the bit I like, which is telling the story, writing the book, uh, and everything else, which for my own books I have to take care of, the, you know, the typeset and the cover design and everything, all of that, I don't have to concern myself with. And, and you know, and that's the reality. Um, that's what I most enjoy. So, you know, if that's what I most enjoy, why not go on doing it? I mean, I get up most mornings about half past four or five o'clock, have breakfast, have a shower, in the summer go for a bike ride, sit down here, work till about three. Um, then it's all written out to me and, you know, can't do it the next day. And I go, but increasingly this little space I'm in has everything I need. Now, let me just tell you about it. I won't try to point the camera everywhere because that will just make difficulty. But up there is a blown up photograph that I got from the Times. And there's a guy called Wade Dooley, who was, the, who was an England forward. And he's down on his knees and he's going oh, like that. And in behind him is a guy called um, Dewey, and coming in from the side is another one. It's all the pretty boys, right? We're looking at the, um, the England rugby side of more than 20 years ago. And those guys had been playing Wales. Um, and for the last 15 years, when they played Wales in Cardiff, they hadn't won. And that was the match they won, and I was there. And Wayne Dooley had just scored the try. Mickey Skinner, the guy on the left. I mean, when he's talking about all the pretty boys, it's difficult to imagine anybody who fits that description less well than either Mickey Skinner or Wayne Dooley. But I was there. That was a great moment. But up here is a print I brought back from the Prado in Madrid. And it's a picture by Velasquez and uh, if anyone wants to look it up it's, it's a picture of the, the crown prince Balthazar on horseback and sometimes as a writer and you must know this sometimes as a writer you find yourself trying to do something that is just a little bit beyond your capability. You can't do it. You don't know how to do it. And that could be very discouraging. But when I have one of those moments, I look up there 
And I think, look at that, that painting. The, the painting of the crown prince is just wonderful beyond imagination. That painting was by Velasquez, one of the finest, the greatest artists who ever lived. And he couldn't paint horses. And that gives me immense satisfaction, because this, this chubby beast the prince is sitting on could be anything. It certainly doesn't look like a horse. And if you, if you, go, to, if you go to the Prado in Madrid and you go outside, you'll see an equestrian statue of some prince or other, or king or other. And in the guidebook, it says, um, the statue of the king or the prince was cast um, from a model by Velasquez. But for the horse, they got somebody else to do it. And I read that and I think, yeah, and we know why. <laughs> All right. Um, so, you know, what do I take from that? I take, yeah, okay, you know, you're not the best who ever lived. You're pretty good. You know, but you're not that, but accept it. Accept it. Because that's where happiness lies. And, um, you know, if all you want is to be absolutely the best, and if you're, if you're, if you resent people giving more praise to other people, uh, you're going to be a miserable son of a bitch. And, 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 you know, one day you'll be dead. And, and, and is that what you want people saying? He was a miserable son of, son of a bitch. I'll tell you what I want. When, when I go, I want my gravestone to say he had a lot of laughs. So there we are. Yeah. Anything else? I can't think of anything else, unless there's anything else that you think that you haven't mentioned yet. No, I can't. Um, I can't. <laughs> As you can tell, you know, I could probably talk for England. Um, and a lot of it's drivel, and I know that, but does it matter? <laughs> you know, uh, who was it? I forgot. It was Bona Law, wasn't it, who said um, nothing matters very much and very little matters at all. Now, I said that once. I quoted that once to a social worker who got very, very upset. Everything matters. Everything is to be taken seriously. Well, I'm sorry, but that's just bullshit. Yeah, they're uh, people, social workers, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, well, it can be. So, you know, I just feel, you know, um, you do the best you can. And when it's over, it's over. I mean, I'm going, this weekend, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to a 90th birthday party. And what you really hope for when you're invited to a 90th birthday party is you don't get a last minute message saying, change of plan. It's actually going to be a funeral. That's what you hope. Um, but you know, that moment would come to us all. Yeah, I read something that, that a fellow writer, somebody I don't don't like and don't approve of, actually, um, wrote, uh, and I don't approve of him because um, I don't like what he writes. Um, but he described somebody dying in the moment of death. 
and he said, you know, his expression, the expression on his face said, what? Who? Me? Now? You know, and, um, and I do like that. I mean, you know, I don't like this. I don't like his subject matter. It writes what I would, what I think of as porn. Um, but, but you can't fault the way, the, you know, the way he uses words. Um, and I'm not even convinced these are he because I, I, I've had a suspicion for a long time that it's actually his sister who writes the stuff. But anyway, we won't go into that, and I'm not naming any names now, but I've said that. Um, but, you know, it comes to audits eventually. What? Who? Me? Now? And um, when you got to go? You know, it'd be nice if people thought afterwards, yeah, he had a lot of laughs. Yeah, he was fun to be around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a bit of a pain. Had some stupid ideas. A bit right-wing. But what the hell? Absolutely. Sounds like my motto as well. Right. Well, thank you for that conversation. It's been very... I think I'm going to go and have some in the week and a cup of tea now. Would you just like to uh, tell everyone where they can get your books from and find out more about you if they wish? Say that again. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you and where they can get your books from? Yes. um, I've got a website uh, called John Lynch Writer, all one word. And um, this is my books there. Most of my books, um, if you've got the ISBN, you can go into a bookshop and they'll order them for you. On the other hand, you can get them all from Amazon. They're all on Amazon, uh, both as e-books and as paperbacks. Uh, the next one in the series, in the... Um, Police procedural series will be out sometime next month in July. Um, the tagline of that is they think it's all over. It is now, which will give you some idea of something that goes on in that book. Uh, although I doubt that anybody outside the UK will, will understand it. Um, in fact, I asked three Americans um, does this mean anything to you? And of course, it meant nothing whatsoever. And the, the third book in the Blakiston Historical Fiction series should be out by September. And the first in the uh, Claire Tanner Female Sleuth series uh, will be out also probably in September. Whether I'll ever write another contemporary fiction standalone book. I don't know because you don't know in advance you're going to write those. They just arrive. You know, you start writing something. Like when I wrote, when I sat down here and wrote, all I'd said was I wouldn't mind seeing her in her knickers. Um, You know, where does that come from? The hell knows. Um, I do actually have a a certain idea, but I'm not going into that in public. Um, uh, So, you know, you never know when an idea is going to strike. And when it does, I find when it does, you know, you're just helpless. Because that's when when the characters start surrounding you and telling you things. Don't forget this. Hey, what about that? 
you can't say that. That's not what happened. You know, and um, sooner or later, somebody's going to turn up and say, you know, we need you to lie down in a darkened room. Um, <laughs> but I'll take my chances. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure and enjoy the rest of your afternoon and your lunch. <laughs> and you. Thank you. And I'll okay. see you soon. <laughs> Bye-bye now. Take care, John.